Thank you, Kimberly Salazar. What a wonderful blessing. I love that compassion hymn. Thank you, Kimberly. John chapter 1 is where we are this morning. John chapter 1, if you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church at this time. The rest of us are looking at John chapter 1. Begin reading in verse 1 and read down through verse 14. Is verse 14 will be the text of the sermon this morning. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God, as we look into your word this morning, would you stay the darkness that is so prevalent in our society? Would you bring your light the light of your spirit to bear in our hearts that we may more fully understand your character, who you are and what you have done, that we might worship you effectively and believe in you with a genuine heart. In your name we pray, amen. I'm so thankful to be back preaching to you this morning. Thankful for the men that God has provided to lead the congregation, the team of men that God's brought here as pastors that you've asked to lead and shepherd you spiritually. And it was wonderful to to finish my education last week as as, uh, Matt read that letter and then to hear Ben preach and Sean preach through the live stream. I'm very thankful for the opportunity to, to sit under the preaching of the men that God has brought here as well. All of us needs good preaching. And I'm very thankful that when I'm gone, not only you can receive good preaching, but I can also receive good preaching from a distance and even through listening to it later. Many of you know, I, um, I, the last three and a half years, I've been uh, involved in, in a, a seminary degree, a terminal degree from the Master's Seminary in, in um, the Los Angeles area in California, in Sun Valley, California. And the majority of that degree was done Uh, The work was done, the lectures were done in person, and so I would fly out for a week in uh, January, uh, about nine days in January, and then for about 15 or 16 days in July, 
and sit for classes, and um, my wife deserves a degree for having to hold down the fort at home and all the work that she's put in uh, to make that possible. I tell you that to let you know that in my, in my family with my children who were young, California became this mystical place where dad would uh, disappear to for an extended period of time and would come back with gifts. And so uh, in, our, in our home, whenever we, we would talk about, you know, dad going to California, it was always this, this must be the place of many treasures. This must be this, in, this incredible uh, you know, treasure trove of candy and keychains uh, and t-shirts and, and different things. And so when we told them several months ago that we had been planning to take our entire family out to California uh, to celebrate uh, the graduation and also to use it as a little bit of a family vacation, uh, our kids were very excited, as many of you know, because for weeks all their teachers heard every day was 14 days till California, 13 days till California. And, and, and for those of you who've been there, you know, um, in some ways it's, a be, it's beautiful, but, but it's, just, it's just land. It's just another part of the country. But for them, it was this, this mystical trip to this faraway land that dad had visited and brought back gifts. And so uh, our family trip for our children uh, was a little bit more than just uh, a vacation and a getaway, but it was a, a traveling on an airplane to this mystical destination that they had heard so much about and and finally had the place to visit. And when we got there, the Lord blessed us to be able to stay uh, right there in uh, in, in the Simi Valley area in Thousand Oaks as we got an Airbnb, and it was beautiful country. Um, But but it was interesting to see the realization of everything they had dreamed about, you know, lollipop trees or whatever in in this mystical Willy Wonka land of goodness. Uh, come to realization that in, in, in a greater sense, it's just desert, right? And, um, and we had the chance to go see the Pacific Ocean and, and different things like that, which was wonderful. But when that dream, that projection became reality, it was very different than expected. It was a little bit of a shock, a little bit like, is this, is this really it? Like one of my children asked, how are we going to get our van from Indiana to California? And I said, well, no, we're not going to, we're not going to do that. You know, and there's just, there's this, this projection of what someone assumes to be true or believes to be true, that when that projection is realized, in some ways it's exactly what's as expected for some, in other ways it's vastly different. And what we have given to us in verse 14 is God interrupting history and adding, God the Son adding on a human nature and with this incredible, disruptive, brazen, bold, um, shocking statement John declares that God became flesh and dwelt among us. That it's this event that was so different 
though it had been looked forward to by generation after generation of Israelites, in that moment, it was so different than they expected that most of them missed it. May we pray that as what is distant, the realization of that has now become personal through Jesus, may may we not make that same mistake to miss the Word becoming flesh. We've been going slowly through these verses. In essence, the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John should be treated more as an epistle where we're rather than looking at pieces of narrative as we'll begin here in a few short weeks and looking at, at the narrative of what the writer is intending by recounting these, these stories, these accounts of, of, of Jesus. He's unfolding for us doctrine and so we do well to go word by word as John is building this foundation for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of of the truths that will be revealed in the life of Christ. And so we come to verse 14, and we see the first five words, which rightfully so, Pastor Ben mentioned last week, are the the most incredible five words written in in, in the English language, or in any language for that matter. Ever penned by man, these words shake the very foundation of every human being's worldview. And that is that the word became flesh. As John continues to use this title for God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, he he uses this title as a reminder to reference to the Greeks that Jesus is the fulfillment of the purpose of this life. He's the center of creation. He is is the being who is holding this world together by whom all things consist. He is the Logos. And then to the Jews, he's drawing with this title. He's He's pulling in all of the Old Testament phrases. And the word of the Lord came. And the word of the Lord came. Thus says the Lord over and over again as the prophets point to and reveal the word of God to God's people. So John pulls all of the Jews kind of up to speed, if you would. And say, by the way, it's found in the incarnation of the Son of God in Jesus. And this word became. I think some of your translations um, may have the phrase, the word was made. I think unintentionally that's a, a poor choice of words because earlier on it says everything that was made was made by God. And so there may be a, a little bit of a misunderstanding that, that something new was added to Jesus' deity through this, or maybe that God the Son became the Son through the incarnation, but, but with the word became, it's a contrast to the, to the early words was. Remember we talked about in verses 1 and 2, these words of being, that proving the eternality of, the, of God the Son, and now we have the word of becoming that God became flesh. It's that moment of the incarnation that you have one being, one essence, 
One nature in three persons, the Father, Son, the Spirit. And at the moment of conception, God the Son took on another nature. It's called the hypostatic union, and Ben referenced this in detail last week, so we won't go into detail about this. If, if, the, if you weren't here last week, I highly recommend you go back and you listen to that to help explain how we should think about this and the, the words and the phrasing that we must use and be careful to use in talking about this. But at that moment, the word became flesh. In verse 14, in those, those first five words, we have to recognize that in that moment in time, God became what he had never been. Without ceasing to be what he had always been. That you have God from eternity past maintaining every essence and, and, and being of God. Everything that it means to be God becoming flesh. And for the rest of eternity, the second person of the Godhead would retain that human flesh. When it says that he became flesh... It's not a moral statement, that G, meaning that Jesus took on a sin nature. Often Paul uses the word flesh to refer to our sinful condition or our sin bent. For instance, Colossians 2.23, outward actions are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Talking about our sin, our, our, our sin bent that's, that remains even after our conversion. Galatians 5, 16 and 17, I say to you, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so when, when John here is saying the word became flesh, he's not saying in any way that, that God the son took on sin at the moment of conception, that he was not born in sin, rather God who in every way is God in everything that it means to be God, so became man in every way and in everything that it means to be man. You could say that he took on true and full humanity. Truly God, truly man. And in reference to this concept, Ben mentioned last week that this was both perfect and purposeful. Perfect In the sense that without Jesus being truly God, he could have never lived the perfect life that you needed to be fully righteous in your salvation and purposeful in the fact that if he was never truly man, he could not have been your substitute. He could not have stood in your place on the cross. He could not have taken your sin. And so there, the God-man died in your place and the word became flesh. And this is the 
foundational doctrine of all genuine Christianity. So much so that John later writes in 1 John 4, Beloved, do not, be, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus referencing coming in the flesh, is not from God. And there is a heresy uh, that was very prevalent at the time that, that Jesus basically wasn't truly human. That he was uh, kind of this uh, God who was wrapped in a robe of man, you could say, but he wasn't truly man in every way. And, and John is saying, no, he must be both truly man and truly God and everything that it means to be both of those. We have to get the person and work of Jesus right. To miss Jesus is to miss heaven. And I know Pastor Ben preached on those five words, uh, but I couldn't help but also add and reiterate my my thoughts from those words because I cannot stress enough how important those five words are. So much so that in sermon planning when I knew I was going to be gone and Ben very kindly asked, you know, what would you like me to preach on? And I said, well, I'd like you to preach just the next passage in John. Just keep our series going. He said, you realize it's John 1.14. And I said, oh yeah, you can't have that one. You'll have to preach something else. This, this is so foundational to our belief system, that Jesus must be truly God and truly man. And we are going to see that pictured throughout the book of John as you see the humanity of Jesus coming out. And I, and I think, and Ben may have referenced this last week, but I think that some of us feel like we have to defend the deity of Christ to the point of kind of excusing the fact that he was a real man. And we should not feel the need to do that in any way. It actually does a disservice to the person of Christ. And so, as we look at the remainder of verse 14, as we'll do this morning, let's draw our attention to the fact that what, has, what was far off is now near. Right. If we reference back to the, the opening illustration, we are in this moment recognizing what we have never known as God became flesh. And what did he do? Number one, he brought his presence among his people. God's presence among his people. The word dwelt among us. God the Son, the creator, the sustainer of the universe, eternal, infinite God, not only took on flesh, but lived with man. This word dwelt is a word that would be used um, to describe someone. We might, we might use the word nomadic. To, to dwell temporarily in a tent before moving on 
to the next location is normally how that word would be used, temporarily in a tent. Maybe, uh, maybe you've built a house and you needed to rent an apartment while your house was being built. And we would say you are dwelling in the apartment before you will live in the house. And so some would see this word as referencing Jesus dwelling on this earth simply for a brief 33 years. Uh, many, many men would, would reference, many godly men would reference this as saying this verse is explaining that Jesus was only on this earth for a short amount of time. Calvin says this, Matthew Henry says this, and I do think that's correct, but, but I also think there's something more going on here that John ties into the glory statements later on in verse 14. You see, the, the, the Greek word is skenos, which is the same consonants and would sound the same it's kind of like if we have words that sound the same like this is a really terrible illustration but like we say ugly wuggly right and we think that's kind of funny because it, it sounds the same in English so there are word plays that happen as John is going through and it's the words dwelling and and Shekinah glory he skenane uh, in the Shekinah and so there's this word play going on here to where he's drawing all these Jews' attention to something really interesting. That when it says that the word dwelt in a tent, this word can also be translated tabernacled. That um, much like Pastor Brent has been wandering in the wilderness among these many churches over the past six months, you know, so the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And as they were wandering, in Exodus chapter 24, God confirms with Moses the covenant. He says, you have come out of Sinai, I mean, you've come out of Egypt You've tabernacled here. You've tented here at the base of Mount Sinai. I'm giving you my covenant. I'm through Abra- the covenant that the same covenant that I gave with Abraham. I am confirming that covenant now with you, Moses, here at Sinai. And I'm going to give you these tablets of stone to confirm that covenant. And he meets with Moses and what's happening in that moment at Mount Sinai. You have the clouds descending, you have thunder, you have lightning, you have earthquakes, you have all this happening because God's glory, the book of Exodus says, descends onto Sinai. And immediately following that, that's remember Exodus 20, and it's the Ten Commandments, immediately following that, God, in Exodus 24, confirms again this covenant, and then he gives Moses a command in Exodus chapter 25. Listen to this. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, he says, And let your people, because I am covenanting to be with them, let them make for me a sanctuary, a tabernacle, a place for my presence, that I may dwell in their midst. And if you were to look at the Greek version of the Old Testament, you'd see the same wording here, that, that I may tent tabernacle, that I may dwell in their midst, ex- do it exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture. You have to do it in exactly the way that I tell you because this has to happen according to my plan. That's what God says. You can't create this on your own. You can't make the tabernacle of your own design. It has to be as I've said. Now, I don't do this very often, but on a Sunday morning, I want you to turn back to Exodus chapter 40. Because Exodus, from Exodus 25 
all the way to Exodus 40, and there's a little bit of a generalization, but God reveals to the children of Israel how they are to build it, and then they build it exactly as God commands. And we're going to begin reading in verse 16. So keep your finger in John 1. We'll come back. Remember, we're looking at this word, dwell. When the Jews who were familiar with the Greek Old Testament that they were referencing, that they had read and memorized, the one that Jesus quoted from, when they read John's letter, John's gospel account, and he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among you. What is he drawing their minds to? That's what we're trying to trace. And so in Exodus chapter 40, I want to begin reading in verse 16. And from verse 16 down through verse 33, I want you to notice how many times Moses recounts that they did all of this exactly the way God said. The word of the Lord was revealed and they obeyed the word of the Lord. Begin, look with me at verse 16. Then Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month of the second year, in the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases, set up its frames, put it on its poles, raised its pillars, and he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the coverings over the tent over it as the Lord commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it in the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord commanded. The word of the Lord came. He's obeying. Uh, verse 22, he put the table in the tent of meeting in the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 24, he put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and he set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. He put the golden altar on the tent of meeting before the veil. He burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded Moses. He put in place the screen from the door of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting he offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, which with Moses and Aaron and the sons washed their hands and feet. And when they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court and the tabernacle of the altar. He set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. What does God want you to see in this passage? He wants you to see that the word of God came to Moses, and Moses did exactly as the word of God said. And so the question now we're going to ask is, this has been a lot of, ch of chapters of God confirming the covenant and laying out what should happen where his glory would dwell, the very essence of God descending to the earth, what's going to happen next? And you hold your breath. And in verse 34, then the cloud. What is the cloud? It's the Shekinah glory. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. That's the tent that God had Moses set up outside the camp where he would meet with Moses face to face. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. The presence of God was there. Throughout all their journeys, verse 36, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day it was taken up. 
For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout their journeys. And so in the Old Testament, we have the glory of God, the very presence, the Shekinah glory of God, descending down in the tabernacle in their midst, but not really in their midst. Because it says that they looked and they saw. And when, the God, when God's glory descended on the tent of meeting, not even Moses could get in. Because, friends, you have to understand something. In the Old Testament, the glory of God in this way was held at a distance from God's people. That if they wanted to, if they wanted to experience the presence of God, only the high priest could do that. And, and, and the glory and the cloud of God's presence descended on the tabernacle and on the tent of meeting that God had Moses set up for face-to-face communication. And it was far from the people of God. It was kept at a diff- distance, so much so that there was a veil put over the Holy of Holies so that no one could enter into the mercy seat and no one could even see the very presence of God. And then you turn back to John 1.1 and you see that John is using this tabernacle language to say that Jesus dwelt among us. That the presence of God that filled the tabernacle, the very glory of God, everything that it means to be God, the, the, sum, the summation of all his attributes, the visible representation of holiness, righteousness, and justice, of truth and grace, the two categories that everything can fall under, it came to dwell among us in the person of Jesus. Matthew 27, 51 tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, paying the price for the sins of God's people, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. God's presence had left the temple years before. But as a symbol, God wanted to make it clear that no longer was God at a distance. God, his very presence made available to his people because access to God is available through Jesus. God, had cho- God has chosen in this one statement, dwell, to come and tabernacle in a personal and imminent way. And when he came to dwell, he didn't dwell in some palace distant or some distant tabernacle or temple. Jesus came to a small town to be raised in a carpenter's home. He lived a life just like you and just like me. He was born into a regular home. He lived a regular life. He was truly human in every way, yet he is Emmanuel, God with us. You know, many of our Christmas hymns point to this incredible truth, and and their doctrine is, is just so rich and filled 
with this language that you've probably never noticed before. In fact, I thought about um, asking Ben to, to sing some of these Christmas hymns this morning, but, but some of you may have had a heart attack if we sing Christmas right at the beginning of May. But I, I just want to read these lyrics to help you understand how Christians in the past have tried to poetically frame this language and this doctrine. Verse 2 of O Come All Ye Faithful. Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning, Jesus, to thee be all glory given. What's the next phrase? Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Verse 3, true God of true God, light from light eternal, humbly he enters the virgin's womb. Son of the Father, begotten, not created. Oh, come, let us adore him. Rich, rich hymns. How about Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Verse 2, Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come. Offspring of the virgin's womb. Listen to this. Veiled in flesh. The Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. You say, why do you sing hymns? That's why. Try to write something like that today or find somebody who can even think that way because we're on Twitter too much, right? It's like these are deep doctrinal truths that we can sing and confess together. Veiled in flesh, meaning that when you saw Jesus, his divinity, the Godhead veiled, and yet the Godhead is still seen by those who come in faith. He's Jesus, our Emmanuel. Friends, God came to you. And his desire is that you would not remain far off, but would be brought near to him. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13. Those who are far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That the very presence of God, the glory of God, everything that it means to be God, dwelt among us. And his desire is that you would not be far off, but that you would be brought near by the blood of Christ. So come in repentance and faith, laying your heart and your life down at the feet of Jesus. And cast your all on the cross. God's presence among his people. Secondly, God's glory revealed to his people. God's glory revealed to his people. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Often, I actually heard somebody do this this weekend and it grieved my heart. 
We, we try to read scripture from a personal, I, I heard someone say, you know, you need to take that passage and just put I, 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 I there. And you're like, no, put God, 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 God there, but don't put I, 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 I there, right? And I want you to imagine John, between the ages of 75 and 85 years old, through the inspiration of the Spirit, penning this statement. We beheld his glory. We saw it. Like I saw him. Like I walked with him. I saw him sweat. I saw him sleep. I got to see Jesus pray. I got to see him transfigure. I saw his glory. I saw the miracles. We, as a group, were there when the man's withered hand on the Sabbath was recreated. And the Pharisees lost their minds. We were there when the lame man was healed. We were there when the blind man received his sight. John was there when Christ was crucified. And Jesus called down as his mother was watching him suffer. And he calls out to the apostle John and he says, behold, your mother, take care of her. Mom, behold your son. John was there to see the risen Christ in all his glory. And yet with his With his pen dipped in ink, he says, we saw it. We saw it. So we need to ask two questions. With this statement from John, we saw his glory. We need to say, number one, what is the glory of God that was here demonstrated? And secondly, we need to ask the question, how was this displayed through Jesus? So what is the glory of God? And we've said this over and over again, but we're going to keep saying it over and over again because when you see the word glory in Scripture, I want this definition to be echoing in your mind as you read the Bible for yourself and you see the glory of God. You need to think everything that it means to be God put on display. That's what it is. It's everything, all of God's attributes put on display for us to see. The glory of God, what God contains, is the essence of everything that it means to be God. And the manifested or the shown glory of God is everything that it means to be God shown to the world. So that's what the glory of God is. Then how did Jesus display this? Well, Jesus displayed this as being the perfect display of what it means to be God in human flesh. We've seen this. Colossians 3.29 For in Him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's what this means. That they saw God in the flesh. Now, I think it's important to qualify this 
by exactly what this means and what it doesn't mean. Number one, we have to understand this does not mean that everybody who followed Jesus was able to see the glory of God on his life. This glory was only revealed to a specific group of people who through faith believed that Jesus was who he said he was. So this glory was revealed to those in faith. I want you to listen to some of these cross-references that will prove that just from the book of John that we'll get to in the coming months. John 2.11, this was the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. So through the, the miracle of the water turning to wine, the disciples' eyes were opened and they saw his glory. This is God. And they believed in him. Not everybody there did. Some did. John eleven four. 4, when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness, talking about Lazarus, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So that when I say Lazarus, come out. And people see a human raising the dead. They're going to look at that human and say, that human is God. It's the glory of God displayed through Jesus. But not everybody saw it this way. John 12, 39 through 43, as he quotes Isaiah. He's blinded their eyes. God has blinded some eyes. He's hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things, John 12, 41, because he saw his glory. He saw the glory that Jesus displayed, the glory of God, and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And I think this is very important to recognize that the closer the disciples got to Jesus, the more beautiful his glory was to them. This glory was not some sort of glow or phosphorescence that followed Christ around. Um, I've mentioned this a couple of times, but I love watching nature documentaries. And there is a certain type of algae, or algae, depending on how you want to say it, uh, that, that lives in the ocean that's phosphorescent that when you stir it or when you irritate it, it glows. And so you'll see this uh, when some ships uh, behind them, they'll leave a trail that looks like it's glowing in the dark. God's creation is just amazing, isn't it? Uh, I saw a, a, a video of, of the, this uh, beach that was filled with this algae, and every time the waves would crash, it would look like the waves were lighting up because it would, it would shine, right? Like a lightning bug. And some people think that everywhere that Jesus went, he had this glow about him, you know? And, and he would walk into a town, and maybe he'd leave a trail of phosphorescence, right? And, 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 and people would say, oh, there goes God. And, or, or maybe even he had a halo, right? In paintings, you see the golden disc behind their heads. Uh, for those who, who some would classify as saints, or, or when you see Christ recognized, maybe you see it with a with a halo around his head. But when we say the glory of God, it's very important for you to understand that there was nothing like that going on in Jesus' life at all. You could not look at Jesus and identify him as anything different than a common man, a handyman, a carpenter, 
You know, this is why I, I think it's very dangerous to do any sort of visible depictions of Jesus because, um, because nor- the normal pattern is that Jesus is projected as, as a little bit different than everyone else. Maybe in his eyes they're kinder or he has kind of an essence around him where people are drawn to him. And actually, friends, it was the opposite. That you could not look at the God-man and tell by looking at him with your human eyes that he was anything more than a normal, common man. In fact, Isaiah even says that his, his form and comeliness was not something to behold. This this identification as Jesus as the Messiah that John is drawing their attention to through this tabernacle concept is saying just like the, the Shekinah glory of God came and dwelt in the tabernacle so everything that it means to be God dwelt on this earth among us as a normal human being. You could say Jesus was just like you in every way except for your sin nature. In order for anybody to think that Jesus was anything more than a common man, God had to open their eyes. God had to through faith, through their faith and obedience, uh, through their faith and belief, excuse me, God had to open their eyes to see Jesus as more than just a common person. That's why in Matthew 16, he says to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, blessed are you. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. Because if it wasn't for God, you would never believe that I am truly God and truly man. So much so that one of his followers, Thomas, they said that Jesus had been raised from the dead. He doubted, and I think that Thomas may get a little bit of a bad rap here um, because when Jesus presented himself to Thomas in his resurrected state, Jesus says, take your hand, place it in my wounds, place it in my side, place it on my feet. See, I am this Jesus. And then Thomas gives what what I believe is the greatest statement of the deity of Christ in all of Scripture in John 20, 28. He says, my Lord and my God. And it's only through God opening his eyes that anyone would ever say that. And friend, you may be here and you may say, I don't know what the big deal is with this Jesus thing. And it's because God has not opened your eyes to see the truth. And we pray that the Spirit would breathe life into your soul and that your eyes would be opened and you would correctly identify who Jesus is and what he has done and place your faith fully on him for the forgiveness of your sins. This is what Hark the Herald Angels Sing is referring to when it says, Veiled in flesh. When unbelievers looked at Jesus, they saw a normal person, sometimes even an imposter. This is what Paul means in Romans 8, 3. Some of you have wondered about this phrase. This is what Paul is referring to in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 when he says, 
that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. It doesn't mean that he had a sin nature. It means that he was in the likeness of your and my flesh in every way. This, this flesh, this body. So if you were to walk down the road in Judea at the time of Christ, you would not be able to pick him out of the crowd. In fact, um, if we had a time machine, which I don't think we'll ever have, uh, I don't think God would ever allow that, but if we did, uh, and you were to go back in time, and you were to look in Judea, and you were to look for Jesus, first of all, nobody would really know where he was to be found until he started to do his miracles. And then when you were to see him, you would probably say, really? Like, that's him? Nah, not that guy. Not that guy. Because Isaiah 53, 2, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. But there was one time, one time, before his resurrection, that his glory was manifested to his disciples. And it was at the transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17 Jesus took Peter, James, and John, who wrote our gospel, and was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And I wonder if that's what was the first image to come into John's mind when he says, we saw his glory. I got to see it. And friend, for all of us, who are genuine believers, who now walk by faith, one day when you take your last breath here on this earth, you will open your eyes in heaven and you will also see his glory. What a day that will be. My Lord and my God. What kind of glory did Jesus possess quickly? I think we'll finish quickly. The first kind of explanation that John gives is that this glory is of the only Son from the Father. And the first thing I want you to see in verse 14 in this statement is that it's exclusive. There is no other person through whom the glory of God is displayed in this way. There is only one begotten Son of God. One unique Son of God in this way. John the Baptist was different, and, and, and John goes out of his way. In verse 7, he came as witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe in him. Verse 8, he was not the light. And friends, any person other than Jesus that you look to to bring you satisfaction will let you down. No one can take the place in your heart that Jesus can he came to fulfill you. He came to rescue you. He came to save you. He came to forgive your sins. And he is the only way to heaven. There is no other way to the Father than through Jesus. He is the only Son of the Father. Secondly, this is a statement of relation. It is a statement of relation. It's a statement of exclusivity. There's no other way to the Father but through Jesus, through the Son, and secondly, it's a statement of relation. He is the only unique, some of your translations will use the word begotten Son of God. The monogenes, the, the only, the mono, one. The one who comes from, the unique Son of God. 
And this verse is actually a verse that some would use to look down on certain translations who would translate this word, this word monogenes, as only, only unique rather than only begotten. But I'd like to encourage you that if you hear that, uh, the translation that I'm preaching from this morning, the ESV, does not take begotten out of Scripture. In fact, it, it doubles down that Jesus is begotten, referencing it four other times as we'll get to later in the book of John, pulling it from the Old Testament. But, but in this passage, the, what John wants you to see is that he is the only unique one here. There is no other being that is like Jesus. We are sons of God. We are children of God. But we are not only unique children of God like Jesus is. There's a heresy in the word of faith movement that goes something like this. You are God's child. Everything begets those of its kind according to creation. And so what does God give birth to in your life? God gives birth to other gods and therefore you are a little God. That is falsehood, that is heresy, and that will condemn you to hell. If you hear someone say that, yell at the screen, throw something at the television, or or comment on YouTube and say, wrong, or something, right? Heresy. That is not true. You are a child of God, but you are not a God. There is only one, and there is only one unique son, Jesus. He is the only begotten. That word begotten does not mean born in time, it means eternally proceeding from. And you see that referenced here in verse 14 in the phrase that we have translated from us, from the Father. Proceeding from the Father. That's, that would be the, the essence of, of the translation of begotten. It's coming from the Father. That Jesus receives life from the Father eternally. There was never a time when Jesus, there was never a time when the Son was not begotten of the Father. He was begotten from eternity past. Very important. There are some who will tell you that at the moment of the incarnation, that's when the Son became the Son. But if that is true, that at eternity past, the Father's not the Father, and we've got a big problem. Because from eternity past, the Father is giving life to the Son. And that's what begotten means. It's a reference of relation here. And it no way implies that, G, that, 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 that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, had a beginning. It does mean that there was a point where his human nature was conceived and the person named, the human named Jesus was conceived. But Jesus, as the Son of God, the human nature, began at the incarnation. But the person of God, the Son, uncreated, has no beginning. He is from the Father. God's presence among his people, God's glory revealed to his people. And thirdly, very quickly, God's character manifested to his people. And we could go more here more deeply here, but we'll look briefly at the last phrase in verse 14, full of grace and truth. This reference is parallel to the concept in the Old Testament of loyal, faithful love that we saw in the book of Ruth, 
that has said love that God has for his people, that Jesus is full of grace. He is full of truth. The two categories that were often referenced to the God of the Old Testament and his attributes, grace and truth. And you can see that reflected. If we had time, we could go to Exodus 34 and seeing God revealing himself and saying over and over again, I am truth, but I am also grace. And so we see God here in the person of Jesus, full of grace and truth. And so we are faced with the unalterable truth that Jesus is truly equal to God in every way, possessing everything that it means to be God and the very essence of God in himself. When we were in uh, California, we took a drive through the mountains there and there's some incredible houses that are, that are, I mean, houses costing tens of millions of dollars along the way. And one of them, one of them had a, an, a, uh, an infinity pool. You know what an infinity pool is? They're really cool. Um, I've never really been in one, but I've seen it from a distance, so I assume they're cool. But um, an infinity pool is where the water is filled all the way to the top, and it, and it flows constantly flowing over the edge. Right, And so supposedly when you're in it, it looks like the pool just goes on and on and on. I'm assuming there's some sort of drain that catches the water and pumps it back in or something. It's got to be or else it'd run out of water. But, um, but a, a pool like that is, is full and overflowing all the time. It's just pouring over the sides over and over and over again, over and over again, constantly going. And when we drove by, you could see this massive pool and the water is just flowing over the side. And that's what this concept means by full of grace and truth. It's that the, the, the attributes of God are full up in Jesus and they're just flowing out, flowing out. Mercy, grace, kindness, love, power, truth that is full and overflowing. And the amazing concept that I'd like to leave you with is that that has continued in Jesus. And when you're saved, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ is planted in you, and that is now happening in your own soul. And so you living for Christ is not you generating some sort of grin and bearing it and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and just barely making it as you grind away in the Christian life. It's that in the spirit of God present inside of you, you are cooperating with the Holy Spirit and allowing the fullness of God's attributes to come out in your life. And that's when you give God glory. Is when we heard sung by Kimberly Salazar so beautifully that others will see your compassion shown through us. That's how we give glory to God. Is that that spirit that is present in us, that is full of grace and truth, is flowing out through our lives as we live in accordance with Scripture. Friends, what a, what a blessing this has been. I look forward to continue to work through as we look through that concept of glory flowing through and how John even bore witness to that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful 
that you would reveal yourself so clearly to us in these pages of Scripture. And we do pray that your glory would be made manifest in our lives. That we would show your truth and your attributes to others as it flows out of us as we cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit. 